Good afternoon, and welcome to the Healthy Indoors Live Show. I'm your host, Bob Krell. I'm founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine. Thanks for joining us. Uh, today's topic uh, is another one that I think is uh, really important. Uh, we have uh, with us a guest who's been on the show several times. Uh, I don't, I've lost count. He, he was the reigning champion last year, but uh, I think David Krause may have uh, taken, over, taken over the uh, reigning champion spot. So um, with us is Kevin Kennedy. Uh, he's an environmental hygienist and program director of the Environmental Health Program at Children's Mercy, Kansas City. Uh, the program provides patient families, schools, and child cares with technical assistance and resources to help them reduce indoor environmental exposures that may result in health problems for the children. Mr. Kennedy has been involved in environmental health and science and industrial hygiene chemistry consulting for over 30 years. And yeah, you have. Kevin, welcome. How are you, buddy? I'm doing well. It's fan see, fantastic. I'm showing my age a little bit, right? I mean, you know. Yeah, but you, you still, you still, you exude that whole thing of, you know, uh, wisdom and, and experience. <laughs> well, experience, yes. Uh, wisdom from the, from the road, so to speak. But uh, I appreciate that you're, you're being kind. Well, you are a road warrior. And, and what I really like is, uh, you know, you're one of those people that really is a hands-on, you know, you've, you've actually been in the field. You, you, you actually live this, you know, you're not just an administrator type person, which I, I, you know, kudos. Um, well, thank you. Uh, lived it early on, a little more uh, on the administrator side, but really also um, taking that idea of not so much administrator, but, but uh, advocate, facilitator, uh, try, educator, trying to get more and more people involved in uh, healthy housing in the workforce uh, and, and actively working in their communities to assess and characterize Health and safety issues in housing, it's, it's an incredibly huge problem uh, nationwide. And as you and I talked earlier, around the world, unfortunately. It, it, what's interesting is like, I think it's, you know, we've been maybe as the public sector has become more laser focused on indoor environmental uh, as maybe a response or a knee jerk reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic, right? People are, you know, it, at least indoor environmental issues are more in the forefront than they were before, I think, for the general public. You'd agree, no, right? No question about it. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. Surveying consumers pre-COVID, there was clearly an interest, especially by a lot of younger parents who were, you know, concerned about uh, uh, the environment their kids uh, might spend time in. And those would be consumers with some funding, right, to be able to make a change. But post-COVID, now you're exactly right, everybody has realized and recognized the importance of their home their indoor environment where before they weren't paying attention to the 70 to 90% of the time they spent indoors. Now spending almost a hundred percent of their time indoors, they're very aware. And if they're there every day with their family or with their child, especially one with a chronic health problem, now they're paying even more attention. So absolutely it's, it's opened people's eyes to the importance of their indoor environment. I mean, that makes total sense. But it, it, one thing that, you know, that we've, and we've had this conversation before we had it numerous times on shows last year with you, um, is that it's also pointed out the discrepancy with how the indoor environments, the home, the housing environments and the health outcomes, you know, disproportionately affect underserved communities. 
no it's, question about it. It's a big, uh, it, it really, it point, you know, because even a lot of the guidance, right, from CDC and, and everything that came out from the feds were like, oh, you know, stay in your home and quarantine yourself and don't, don't get near people. Well, what if you live in multifamily housing with close quarters and bad ventilation? <laughs> and you do. And, and many, many, many people do. And th there really wasn't any specific guidance. Or what if one person in the home became infected? There was some guidance, uh, fortunately, from some cognitive authorities about maybe how to isolate. But you were still really limited to what uh, air handling system your apartment or your condo or whatever had. You were limited to, to your ability to afford certain kinds of uh, aerosol filtering technology. There were incredible challenges for people in trying to um, isolate, to uh, create space. Uh, and then how do they manage air uh, within that same environment to try to isolate the airflow around that infected person so it's not being shared with the rest of the house? Incredibly yeah, and, complicated. And that had to be like, I kind of imagine if you were in, you know, somebody in that demographic, it must have been really frustrating to hear all because the guidance mostly was written at, you know, people with, you know, their single family home with a white picket fence. You know? That's an interesting way to put it, because this right? is still true. <laughs> Even if you look at the research publications on ventilation management in homes or buildings, they, they, they create a model and the model has to be based on some kind of ideal condition or some kind of specific air handling system or relationship uh, for particular uh, rooms within a space. And that doesn't mean it automatically translates to all indoor environments or all scenarios. And you, you, you as a practitioner have to be mindful of that, that, oh, if some study comes out and says, if you place an air cleaner in this particular position in a, in a home or in a school and you open certain windows, you're going to create this, this airflow pattern. Well, that might be true for the model that was published, but it's not true for all buildings that you would set up those, uh, try to set up those conditions in. So you have to be very mindful of how you translate that into the real world situation. You're absolutely right. So you've worked at a, at a children's hospital uh, in Kansas City for, for a long time, right? Um, 20th year, years. this year, 20th year. Yeah. So, so what, I guess my, my, my first question would be, what prompted uh, your hospital, your facility, to take an interest in uh, these uh, home, you know, the patient home environment uh, circumstances? It, yeah. does, it doesn't seem like a normal, a, a normal approach for, you know, the way we usually do things in healthcare. Yeah. No, that's a good point. And actually, uh, even today, with all the advances in indoor environmental research, that's still generally true. Few hospitals or health systems have a program like ours, but ours really was, you know, full credit to Dr. Jay Portnoy, uh, the division director for allergy asthma at Children's Mercy, all those years ago, even before I was hired, uh, recognizing the role of environment and allergic disease for some of his patients who he was giving them all the medications he could, and yet they were struggling to stay out of the ED or out of the hospital. So then with his own money, hiring a, a, a environmental hygienist to go to a, the home of some of these kids and look at what the conditions were they were in and recognizing, oh my gosh, these kids are dealing with horrendous exposures at home and then working within the community to fund cleanups and then seeing the instant response to that, that these children suddenly get better and they don't need anywhere near the medications they needed before to manage their asthma. And he was able to uh, then advocate to the leaders 
years, and they actually, interestingly, they did an audit of how well they took care of asthma patients coming into the ED. And that audit, and it's published, found uh, they didn't do a good job of, of managing cases. They didn't do a good job of follow-up. They didn't ask the right kind of questions. They didn't ask anything about the home. Uh, and it was through the audit and the combination of his advocacy and understanding of the role of the environment that he convinced them to let him hire a hygienist half-time. And then ultimately, uh, he was able to get them to make that a full-time position. And that's when I got hired. And so it was innovative to have that person, to, mm -hmm. to bring a person on, to go to the homes of chronically ill children and look for environmental issues. And then we took that to the next step. Okay, you found them. What are you going to do about it? And that's where we were fortunate to be able to apply for now many grants over the years specifically to fix things, home repairs. HUD had uh, back then in the early 2000s, up through, I think, about 2010, uh, they had these excellent uh, healthy home grants, program grants, to fix a wide array of deficiencies in homes. And we tried to focus our interventions, our effort on uh, kids with asthma and allergy, and as did many programs. And now here, years later, there have been lots of uh, of studies, uh, home intervention studies. Uh, we put out a few of those that are about doing these environmental interventions in homes and how that uh, Im impacts asthma patients. And some uh, health systems do do home visiting and, and, and uh, many more now than ever before. The problem still, in my opinion, is that uh, those health systems don't use a person with our type of expertise. We have advocated for using a person with an environmental background, with a building science background, because they often will hire or use uh, nurse case managers or uh, respiratory therapists or in-home uh, nursing staff or someone certainly with a clinical and health background that is important, but they don't have knowledge of the built environment. They don't have knowledge of environmental science and exposures. They could gain that knowledge, but clinically or, or traditionally, they, they don't have that. So we advocate for a having a person or collaborating or partnering uh, with uh, organizations that have those people. And so uh, uh, to me, I think that's so important to our industry to to have that connection to build a relationship with healthcare providers. I, I mean, is it safe to assume though that your, you know, your healthcare system is maybe an outlier? I mean, I, I, and I, you know, I'm asking this, posing this yeah. question. No, it know. is. Yes, we it, are an outlier. It's not common, right, to be yeah. dealing with the home side and and going as far as to talking about remediation, remediating issues in homes for the healthcare yeah. system. Usually, yeah. it's push, pushing prescriptions, right? Exactly right. Well, and I won't even, I wouldn't say put, put pushing prescriptions, I'll call, I'll, I'll call that harsh. And I'll call it harsh. Yeah, that wasn't, because, that wasn't fair. Let me qualify no, that. I but only I, say that because they're, they are limited in what they can offer. And don't get me wrong, the medicines are very effective. And, and, and absolutely, any, in the case of asthma patients, they, they need a, uh, that clinical and, and, and medical therapy. That's important. Uh, there's a well-established disease management process but it's it's a comprehensive disease management process. It isn't it isn't simply about treatment. But you are correct that unfortunately, our healthcare system is caught in this cycle of reacting to what people present in clinic and giving them pills. You know, you you see a patient for ten minutes and and. A doctor's best tool is well, you need this pill or you need this procedure or you need this. It isn't or hasn't been to think about the whole person and the other uh, 
psychosocial issues, the other mm -hmm. things that might be going on about food. All, there, there are a lot of things that you could look at about people. And in particular, the home environment they spend time in. Everyone on our call today uh, is going to have, unfortunately, a chronic disease in their lifetime, all of us. And according to Medicare, more than 75% of people on Medicare have two chronic diseases. And you're not managing that chronic disease at the hospital where I work or, or the hospital mm -hmm. you go to or the clinic. You manage it in your home, in your neighborhood, in your community. That's where you take care of yourself and your health. And if you're living in an environment that contributes uh, to things you're exposed to to make it difficult to manage where you're using larger amounts of medications just to get by. Well, what good is that? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, it seems like, you know, almost the standard practice is to, is to try to manage the symptoms, but not really going after the causal agent, especially if, if it's like in the case of asthma, right? Uh, the causal exactly agent, right. a lot of it is the environmental condition. I mean, certainly there's, there's you know, physiological issues, but. Yeah, it's a, it's a combination. You're absolutely it, right. There's genetic but, but, but you can't just, but... if you just look at it just on the physiological side, you, you, you still got the, these, you know, things, causal agents over at, uh, you know, where the person spends most of their life. And they're commonly called uh, environmental triggers for asthma. And many of those are allergens, but there are a host of things like uh, secondhand smoke and cold weather and other things for that health condition. But think of other health conditions. Uh, think of someone who's immunocompromised or immunosuppressed, someone with cancer or, or some other really debilitating condition. And they're supposed to manage that kind of significant health problem in a, uh, a substandard housing or in a poor environment. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense. And, and we, we need to cross that chasm. Uh, and that's been a hard chasm for health systems to cross to get uh, out into the community. Uh, but, but that is now one of the charges uh, from mm -hmm. Medicaid and Medicare is that, that they're, they're asking that uh, managed care organizations and health systems Ask people about these social determinants of health or what, mm -hmm. what are I call social contributors because they're things that could be changed if we chose to invest in them. So they're I mean, supposed it, to be screening. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, and, and, and again, the, the whole, the whole uh, push behind that is to try to improve the outcomes, right? And, and maybe that exactly. would ultimately, ultimately that should, at least intuitive, it seems like it should actually reduce the overall health costs if you do that. You're exactly right. The goal is to, to uh, reduce... Uh, the health utilization, the amount of healthcare someone needs, reduce the costs by making it more efficient, by uh, being smarter about what you invest in. If you can improve the environment that a kid with asthma spends time in, the research suggests that a re it leads to a reduction in the medication, the daily medications you use. So you're reducing the, the healthcare utilization, but you're also reducing the associated long-term costs and you're improving the quality of care. Oh, guess what? They call that the triple aims. That's what Center for Medicaid, Medicare Services is. That's what their goal is. That's what uh, Affordable Care Act and expansion was supposed to try to address was this triple aim approach at making for better quality quality healthcare in the US. One important point about that, if you look at an analysis and anybody who's interested in this, I'm happy to share it. There's an analysis of how many dollars uh, first world countries spend on healthcare and how much they spend on social determinants of care. And uh, the United States stands out uh, two or three times more dollars or higher go into healthcare costs and just simply access to healthcare 
then goes into basic um, uh, uh, community services to try to uh, offer these preventive approaches so that people aren't being exposed to things in a house, in a community, in a neighborhood, whatever. All other first world countries spend far more money on those services and end up spending less on healthcare. But is that, I mean, is, is that not partially due to the fact that most of the other first world countries have socialized medical systems and not for, not for profit? Uh, yes. is that, I mean, is that, is that, that, that a part is, of that it? Is, yeah, I think that is part of it. Um, but, but part of it is the way the system is, is taken care of. So a doctor is paid uh, by reimbursement for the patients they see and the procedures and all the stuff that they're recommending. So it's not based on the quality of care or the amount of time spent with a patient, which it shouldn't be. They should just be paid a good salary to be able to help uh, the patients they work with uh, to get the care they need, to fundamentally get the care they need and not have it be based on how many things they can try to get reimbursed for. Did we do this procedure or that procedure? Uh, how many uh, patients did I see in a given day? How many patients do I see in an hour? I mean, the whole health system is driven towards, we, we've got to crank these people through in order to get enough money to cover a lot of our costs. And then, oh, well, people want the latest test. They want the latest mm -hmm. procedure. They want fancy new technology. Not that they shouldn't have that, but not everybody needs uh, an MRI for, for you know, some small thing. And, and the costs related to some of these things are, are incredibly high. But that, the, the, to get back to our original point, the, the point is um, that it's a, it's, we should be focusing on that indoor environment, changing uh, the structure so that somehow there's more investment in hiring professionals like ourselves to, uh, and maybe it's through uh, some kind of healthcare reimbursement to uh, properly assess and characterize the environmental risks in the homes of high utilizing patients, those who are chronically ill or have a health condition where they're very vulnerable. And I can tell you from our own analysis of asthma data from our hospital, the 80-20 rule applies. 80% of the healthcare costs are from the top 20% of patients utilizing services. So there's a tremendous amount of cost going to that top 20%. And if we could invest in working with uh, environmental professionals to uh, partner with health systems to address those top 20%, let's see what kind of issues they're dealing with and maybe even pay, which the research shows a case of asthma, you can pay for both the assessment and the home interventions and see a return on that investment. So it's there, but there's a fundamental disconnect uh, between um, how that's paid for. There's, a, there's an anxiety by the health system. They call it the wrong pockets uh, uh, problem where they don't see the value of them investing in a home when they are the healthcare system and what benefit do they, the healthcare system, get from investing in improving homes or improving things in the community. Now that has changed under the, the law that changed uh, um, in 2008 and, uh, and required now uh, nonprofit hospitals to report community benefit, to go through a formal process of showing how they spend money in the community. You're a nonprofit hospital. How do you invest back in the community? And they have to go through a formal process of asking the community, what, are, what do you think are the concerns for our, our community? Where should we be spending our money? They're supposed to be asking that. And we're fortunate that our hospital, that, that 
that they recognize the value of what we do. And we are supported in part by that community benefit dollar. So for us, and this is an important point, the work we offer to families, they do not pay for. It's, it's offered at no cost to the families. It's, it's built into our system, but it is a, a, a cost, an investment by the hospital. And we we are so appreciative of their willingness to do that. Uh, and that is another reason why we are unique. Yeah, that's, I mean, that seems very unique. Uh, you, you know, you've used the term social determinants a couple of times today and uh, on social determinants on, uh, on health or of health. And I, I, can you elaborate on that? Like what some of those are for, for people that aren't really familiar with that terminology? Well, the idea of social determinants is that there are these uh, various things that, um, uh, that people uh, in their daily routine, uh, 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 either their access to or lack of access to, uh, then lead to um, uh, some kind of a impact or contributing to uh, their uh, the impact on they themselves. So uh, it can be um, their education. It can be uh, 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 access to uh, a neighborhood with safe streets. It can be uh, how much green space there is, uh, the quality of education. It can be what is in the environment. It, do they live near highways? Uh, do they have access to mental and behavioral health services? How much exposure is there to a certain, uh, what are called toxic uh, stress conditions like uh, witnessing homicides, witnessing crime, witnessing uh, abuse, being abused. Uh, uh, there's a whole bunch of these different types of exposures that occur over time. And if you think about a child being exposed to these uh, conditions over time, uh, we now know there's an incredibly important link between our long-term physical health and our long-term mental health. And as you are evolving, as a child develops and evolves, exposure to these things uh, creates this uh, wear and tear on the biological system uh, so that uh, studies suggest that the long-term health outcomes for kids in particular exposed to these different social uh, conditions poverty, um, uh, uh, racial injustice, uh, intentional uh, structured racism and is added to that exposure to smoking. I can just keep coming on with some of these determinants, right? But exposure to these things over time is going to have a direct impact on the health, well-being, and uh, successful, uh, the ability of that person to successfully contribute to society. Uh, so the more we can do to provide uh, opportunities uh, for uh, children to overcome these challenges, for families to overcome these challenges, the greater their likelihood to be healthy, to contribute to society, and um, to make for a better society overall. Uh, so so the, that's why there's this interest. There's also lots of research to show a strong relationship between uh, these social contributors to health and uh, any chronic disease you can think of and the likelihood of people doing well. So um, that's why there's a new focus on social determinants, or again, I say social contributors, because they are things we can change. They are not predetermined. But I mean, I guess I'm asking now, why is it, you know, why, why, why the emphasis on it now? I mean, is, is, because this seems like it's, it's a new focus a little bit, right? 
Yeah, uh, that's a good point. In the last, I will say it's probably been the last four or five years. And it, it came out of this idea, again, credit to Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, uh, really asking uh, your health insurance company, asking health systems to, to ask their patients to, to really intentionally develop uh, screening tools to specifically develop systems where they can assess what are the social determinants of health that someone, a patient that they're supposed to be managing, that that person is being exposed to, that person dealing with. And ideally, when they've screened them and said, oh, you're dealing with this issue and this issue and this issue as you try to manage your emphysema or your chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or maybe you've had a, a slip, trip, or fall as a senior and no one's been to your house in the last 20 years to even know that you don't have grab bars, a ridiculously simple intervention that can significantly reduce those falls. So if you do this screen, you can see what their issues are and then work to address them. And, and they're even advocating for spending money on those interventions, because we clearly know if you put grab bars in the home of a senior, they're far less likely. And then the statistics are, are even documented quantitatively. I just don't know them off the top of my head to show a, a specific quantitative reduction in uh, injury and preventable deaths associated with falls, just because you put some grab bars in uh, simple interventions that could be done in homes. So, the, I mean, and I guess, so you're suggesting, is, is this something that we, and when I say we, you know, us in the indoor environmental, you know, consulting and, you know, professional side, as well as people that are doing building science work, you know, those type of interventions, this, these are things that we should be considering as far, as yeah. far as lo looking, for, looking for those and, and like, I, I guess how, like, well, that's a healthy home concept, right? Okay, sure. That it's whole that, healthy home principles. Yeah, the idea is when I go into a home, I should be looking comprehensively, holistically at the house, even though I might be there about a particular health condition or trying to help a, a client with a reported problem. I should be looking at all things, A, uh, to make sure that the concerns that they've reported to me are correct and accurate, because actually the research shows there's wild disagreement between what people report and what uh, trained experts find when they go to visit their home. A person might report uh, moisture, dampness, and mold, and then when a professional visits the home, the level isn't nearly as significant as been reported, or the reverse. Uh, they've reported it, it and it's, yeah, it's far worse than was reported. The point is that the typical citizen is not a trained expert, right. does not have knowledge in, in many of these common home uh, environmental problems. So the intent of Healthy Homes is I'm, I'm going to address your concerns and either confirm them or rule them out and then help you identify the true concerns, the true hazards in your home that should be addressed. And ideally, I'm looking at all things, whether it's moisture, whether it's contaminants, whether it's safety issues and injury prevention, whether it's general maintenance issues. That's a common one where many home systems are now defective and actually contributing to poor indoor air because the people didn't have the financial resources for routine maintenance for an annual inspection or, or semi-annual by a, an HVAC professional or something. So uh, healthy, that's the whole intent of Healthy Homes is this comprehensive evaluation. 
Makes sense. Uh, so I want to st uh, stress to you, because uh, we do have quite a few people in our virtual studio audience. Um, obviously, people are watching it uh, through the other portal, social media and over on the community. Uh, but we are going to be taking your questions. So um, we've, I've seen a couple pop up in the chat that uh, Susan's curated. Um, so this would be a great time. If you do have a question you'd like to ask on camera, um, type it into the chat. We'll get you in queue and be able to uh, you know, give you the opportunity to ask that question. Um, so yeah. You know, over the years, we both of us have been in this. You know, we've been in the industry a long time, Kevin. I know I met you years and years ago. I can't even remember how long ago, but it was. Yeah, uh, I, I think it was a conference down in Orlando, an IAQA conference, uh, many years. That would ago. have been Dude. like 05 or something. That's what I was thinking. It was. It might have been 05. I, that's that's the year that's popping in my mind. Um, <laughs> but I mean, you know, yeah. Wow, we're we're old, dude. <laughs> we're old. <laughs> we're old. <laughs> but that that being that being said, uh, we've seen. You know. It, the, the old dogs have seen a lot of things over the years. We've had the opportunity to be in a lot of varied environments, some pretty horrific. I mean, I, I speaking for myself, I've seen conditions that people are living in that I just like, it's amazing. And, you know, you also see people that, you know, are living in these conditions and, you know, don't have, you know, they're not in good health. And, you know, and I, as a consultant, obviously, I'm not going to make the ever make that jump to say that this is making you sick. That's not, I can't do that. I'm not a physician. It's not, you know, but you know, you do in the back of your mind, see conditions go, well, that can't be good. Right. So, but you know, we're seeing it because we go into the building for whatever reason we're there. Somebody is, is there with in poor health and we're seeing conditions that we believe probably is exacerbating that, but there's a disconnect between that client's physician and their indoor environmental conditions. Right. Because very rarely is, does a physician, you know, have any direct access to what's happening at the patient's place. I mean, your, your, your healthcare system seems to be an anomaly in this. You guys are an outlier that you actually do have those type of connections. We have that opportunity. I can't say that we are routinely taken advantage of. And, you know, the reality is in 20 years, we've had our peaks and troughs. We've had our ups and downs where uh, many of the clinics are aware that this service is available and then, then their staff turnover and new people come in and then they aren't aware. We've got to re-educate and make people aware again. We've, the same thing happens with in the community. Uh, uh, we might do a training or a lunch and learn and get everybody to where they can make referrals to us. And then, you know, a, a year later, the, there's been complete turnover of the staff. So, so that's ongoing. Uh, but I want to emphasize and thank you for emphasizing that we as environmental professionals cannot make uh, causative statements. We cannot make the relationship between what we see in environment and what health uh, uh, issues someone is reporting. That is not our charge. That is not our role. Our role is to identify environmental conditions. We know what the research tells us about if these conditions exist, the likelihood of impacting people's health is high. Uh, we, we know that, and that, that would be the way we would phrase that information, but we can never make that causal link. And that is a common, unfortunately, occurrence. Many people in our field will yeah. write conclusive things that say, hey, I collected these air samples in your house, and uh, this is causing your respiratory problems, or this is yeah, causing whatever. this is not safe for you to live here. You know, yeah. you, you know, it's like, whoa, that, you, as an environmental consultant, you don't, you really can't make that call. You really can't make those you calls, know. and really the labs can't, should not be putting uh, that kind of information into a report. It is simply, uh, 
what are the results of my samples that I collected? That's really what the lab should be providing to me, not any uh, significant interpretation unless I've asked them for that interpretation. And I've On seen, the other side that too, that. obviously, what you're mentioning there too, I, I don't want to elaborate yeah. too much on it, but I, yeah, I've seen some narratives from on laboratory reports that I'm like, well, you just, just like, how can a physician, if they haven't, you know, had direct contact with the environment, know what's happening there? How does the lab know? They just have a sample that was collected or a series of samples. They don't really know the conditions those samples were collected under. Exactly right. And that that's one of the problems we see. And, and the reason that's important and that we've seen countless times over the years, and I've had physicians come to me with somebody's report and said, I don't know what to do with this. this my patient has brought me this report. They've hired someone to assess their home environment, and all they've brought me are some sample results, and there's no uh, written uh, uh, assessment of, of the, the scope of the assessment, of what was seen, of the interpretation, uh, any and there's, there's just simply a little bit of data and saying this is an unhealthy environment and it's causing your disease or causing your health problems. So part of it is is people within our own industry who who unfortunately uh, don't follow an effective uh, means to be able to communicate effectively with the healthcare side. And then the other side of that, as you were asking in your question, there is this disconnect. We see these conditions, but how can we better connect with the healthcare community? Because many of them don't, uh, within the healthcare community, the health providers, you know, they, they don't have the bandwidth to, uh, they're, not, they're, they're set up in a way where they only have 10 or 15 minutes with a patient and, and some are proactive and seek to have more time with certain patients, but generally their, their, their time is very limited. Uh, so they're checking health status. They may have to do some clinical tests and then they're making recommendations and maybe changing medications or whatever it is. So the more we can provide uh, succinct, valuable information uh, maybe a, a, a summary page that our client could give to their health provider that summarizes some specific uh, things or issues or concerns and support that with maybe some photographs. Because I can tell you that when physicians have seen our reports that include photographs of the conditions in a patient's home, uh, these are children, they are often stunned that, that, that this child who they've only seen within this narrow clinical view, stunned to see the kind of conditions that they might be living in. There's a wonderful book I might recommend called Upstream Medicine by Dr. Machanda, Richi Machanda. Uh, I think it's a TED book, but it's, it's, it's wonderful in that it, he's a doctor who uh, saw patients over time, they reported things, and then he actually took his own initiative to go visit their homes and see the conditions. And we found that with our allergy fellows when they go on a home visit with us, it's very eye-opening to them to make that connection between what they see in clinic and what's in the home environment. So the because more they're just we, getting a snapshot. They, they, exactly when they see right. somebody in a clinic, I mean, they're, they're, they're seeing their, their current condition. So it's really important for us as environmental professionals, yeah, to work with our client, but also to facilitate that communication between our client and their health provider, their physician, and, and maybe even have a direct relationship of maybe doing lunch and learns yourself for the clinics and the regions you serve to say, hey, here's what you should know about environmental uh, conditions and, and some of the common things I as a practitioner have seen uh, here in our community or here in the region I serve. Uh, 
the more we can do to cross that chasm and get the uh, physicians and providers to understand some of the significant environmental conditions that, that patients, families, that people are living with, uh, the more they will help us champion for funding uh, to address those things in the community. I mean, you make a good point. I think you know, with that whole, uh, the, the thought of, you know, when you're writing a report for a client, you know, is, especially when you know that somebody that generally we're getting called out for, you know, for indoor environmental work because somebody's got a health concern. I mean, yeah. right. That's, you know, it's, you know, it's, or potentially it's a real estate transaction. I mean, I, I guess that would be the other one, but, but gen more often than not, it's a health driven thing. So creating some sort of an executive summary type section of a report, because you're right. If you give a, a 15 page report to a client, their physician's not going to read that probably. Oh, well, and but, the but, client might not read it. Yeah, well, they're not going to get it. <laughs> you're right. So, you know, you actually distill it down because yeah, we're guilty of it. We were talking about this in the pre-show. You know, I was throwing acronym, you know, acronyms around, and we did it right in the beginning. You know, it's say, saying RTMP, and people don't know what that means. Well, I just assume they do. And I yeah. think you know, in the IAQ industry, we've got acronyms, you know, at the wazoo. Um, You're making a great point. One of the, <laughs> you know, well, one the of first the acronym is IAQ. Okay, yeah. I labor under the pretense that everybody in the world knows what IAQ is, and I was like blatantly floored about two years ago, right before the pandemic, social gathering with my wife and, you know, I'm talking with people I just met and I start talking about IAQ and everybody's just looking at me dumbfounded. She like, Christy nudges me and goes, they don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> I'm like, well, everybody knows what IAQ is. And everybody's like, no, I'm oh, sorry, man. Well, you know, that's an important point you're making. And one that I often make when I, in the classes we teach on healthy home assessments, uh, that uh, it's important for us to understand the average reading level in the United States is fourth grade level. Fourth grade level. And the average uh, person, 40% of the US population can't do basic math, can't do addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. So if I put a lot of technical information into my report and acronyms or whatever, they don't really know or understand what I'm trying to tell them. And it's, it's uh, often the case, and I've been given a lot of these reports by physicians where it, it is packed full of technical information that even the physician doesn't fully understand. Uh, and we really have to make an effort to not write the report for our benefit, but to write it for our client's benefit. It isn't about all the information I know. It's about right. giving them the information in a form that they will take action on. Ultimately, that's my whole purpose for being there is to advise them on what to do next. So I have to give them information they can use in a simple format. That, that was the that's first a huge point, Kevin. You, you just made a, yeah, actually it's almost a revelation to me too, because you're right. We always want to extol all of everything we know. <laughs> you know, you're paying me $175 an hour, so by God, I'm going to write you know uh, as much technical crap as I can put in there to make it look it's like true. you got your money's worth. <laughs> well, and we suppose to something that's actionable. <laughs> we've done elevated blood lead investigations in the state of Kansas for years, and this is not a, a criticism of the state of Kansas. It is that they had, this is true in many states, they had a requirement for all of these components of a report so that the typical investigation report was 70 pages. You cannot give a family a 70 page report and expect them to know what to read and what actions to take. So we've worked with them over the last couple of years to condense that all the way down into a 15 page report with lots of visuals and uh, photos and things to really help the family understand where, where were the lead 
issues in your home and having that color coded so they they know it was this part of the house and it was this level of lead contamination. They don't need to know the number, just that this port was high and this part wasn't. So they know where to focus their effort and all of the technical stuff, we put web links in and put them on our website so that they don't have to have all these back pages full of all right, that. So they can quickly yeah, cross-reference. The yeah, jargon, that, that certification, whatever. If they want it, that information, we can provide it. Otherwise, they have a link right there. They can go to it any time. Uh, so uh, anything you can do for simplifying the information you provide, not just to your client, but but what might be shared with a health provider. And as we've been talking, uh, even a form that can be summarized that, that say, give this to your health provider. This is a summary of the information. Or if, if your client is comfortable, uh, and there's a little bit of trick to that, because there is a HIPAA uh, issue to to think about. But um, if there's a way to connect with those providers, that might be even better because then they can have follow-up questions to help understand the environment. Again, our role is to help them understand what is the environment and what is somebody being exposed to. Yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, and I, I profess this all the time too, you know, you know, people that are young coming up in the industry, like putting volume and putting a bunch of boilerplate stuff in a report, that's worthless. Don't put that stuff in there. First of all, it, it opens your liability because the, the likelihood of you cutting and pasting something that's not germane and that when you get deposed, you're going to get shredded with, you know, like don't yeah. put extra words in. People are not paying you by the word, they're paying you for results. Yeah, they want, they want actionable information. That's what I was going to say. Actionable yeah. information. Now, yeah, I will I, say there are a couple of points that, that are useful to have as boilerplate, and that would be the section of your report that might be about the limitations of this report. Oh. Your, your, your legal people are going to want that standard language to not be altered. They want that to be the same from report to report to report, the consistency. You are absolutely right. There are certain parts of a report that you know should be consistent from report to report, but any other part is should be tailored to that specific uh, home or or building or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and photo case. And, and you know, you what you said. You know, it, it seems like one point you made, you, you said it, but I want to reemphasize this: like the photos, right, are huge. You know, because a picture is worth a thousand words. You know, you and can where are they placed? There. The vast majority of reports I've seen in an appendice. Yeah, in the back of the report, no. never. I always, put, always I put them in line as we talk about this room. Here's a photo. Exactly here's right. another angle. Here's a close-up. Yeah, That's exactly what we do. It's right yeah. there where we're describing what's in the right. photo so they can Red see. Red arrow pointing to it. Yeah. And if yeah. we have data, you know, measurements or diagnostics that are associated with uh, that room or that photo, if we have a way to, to discuss it right there, that can be useful too. It just depends on how much information we've collected. Because remember... It, 40% of people can't do basic math. So you've got to be real simple with any uh, quantitative data, any numbers, mm -hmm. color code that, hey, this what you know, we found these conditions. Pie they charts were good. are nice. <laughs> yeah, pie charts, what anything that helps them uh, understand uh, what you're trying to convey. Yeah. And, and the thing is, like, if you're giving your reports in PDF, you can have links actually, you know, that pop right out to That's right. you want to go to an expanded thing that could actually you make it an interactive document, which is cool. So I just want to let um, those of you in the virtual audience, by all means, you're welcome to turn your cameras on now. Uh, still stay muted unless you're unless you kind of raise your hand and you're ready to ask a question. And you can raise your hand. We've got the raise hand function. So down in the bottom of your screen somewhere, depending on what type of device you're on, there's a reactions tab on the lower right hand corner of the menu. If you click on that, there's a raise hand button. So raise your hand, we'll recognize you. Uh, one last point before we take any other questions, I, I just want to, uh, uh, you know, just 
give you a second to expound on this. Uh, so you've been involved with the Billing Performance Institute. You worked with Larry Zarker. I know Joe, Joe Madosh, who co-hosted here a lot sure. and co-hosts our, our once, a, once a month after our show. Um, you guys worked together on that. I was on the committee in the beginning too. So yeah. the Healthy Housing Principles, and you became uh, the principal author of that, right? You actually took on that document. Yeah. So uh, what's, what's going on in the future with BPI and you know, you know, the health, Healthy Housing and, and how does that all play into this? Well, first, they were kind enough uh, to to contract with me uh, to serve as a primary author, and there were lots of others who contributed um, uh, in the development review, and, and Larry himself was a tremendous asset in the development of that document, along with some of his uh, staff who did an amazing job in pulling that all together. The great thing is that uh, there was a, just like I said in our work, there have been peaks and troughs. There was a peak and trough within the Healthy Homes uh, initiative across the country with the federal agencies. And there was this, this dip uh, and National Environmental Health Association made a decision to pull back from uh, supporting a, a healthy home specialist credential. And then there's, there was a, a sort of a disappearance of the National Healthy Home Training Centers. And fortunately, uh, BPI stepped up and uh, Larry, through his vision, saw the importance and the value of, of this comprehensive holistic approach towards health and safety and housing, knowing that the energy sector was doing it all along because they, they do it as part of weatherization practice or energy efficiency practice. They're looking at uh, you know, health and safety issues, but unfortunately they, they would either defer them or they didn't have a necessarily a background to do a systematic evaluation of those home environment things. So BPI developed the Healthy Home Evaluator. And then with this new Healthy Housing Principles Reference Guide, they have this new certificate of knowledge exam associated with that. So at least there's something in the marketplace that um, people from really almost any sector, anyone who touches a home or wants to advocate with a, a, a client or a patient or a family about home issues, uh, they could get, get this simple training, read that guide and get the the certificate of knowledge. The, the goal uh, would be to get as many people, I think, ha uh, regardless of who they work for, to have that, that knowledge to create a common language within a community about what are the healthy home keeper principles? How do we work together on them? And then I'm, I hope that the one thing, uh, limitation is the healthy home evaluator credential requires a an energy certification in order to get the evaluator certification and i have been championing the idea of establishing a new uh healthy housing professional certification that's an assessment that's separate from the energy requirement and that that i hope evolves and we'd like to get some funding to support that and do similar to what we did with the evaluator mm -hmm. convene experts and and come up with some standard practice and certification and that kind of thing but uh there's a there's a lot of stimulus money heading down the pipe uh, towards uh, investing in energy efficiency in housing and, and hopefully investing in health and safety in housing at the same time and, and doing indoor environmental well, they're, improvements. They're interconnected. Along with I mean, That's right. They're they becoming really very strongly yeah. connected, as yeah. is the health system with that. A lot of programs mm -hmm. are, are connecting community health workers or others with the weatherization or with the home performance community to work together, similar to the model that we do at the hospital, where it's a building professional working with a health professional to go to a home to evaluate conditions, work with the family, but also identify issues in the home in order to invest in it. So 
all exciting. I'll stop talking about Excellent. it. Yeah, no, it's all, it's good. No, it's perfect. Hey, so we've got some uh, we've got some questions. Uh, actually, coming over from our uh, Healthy Indoors online global community, uh, and that's this is somebody outside of our direct audience. Sure. I'm going to give them an opportunity. So Matt over there uh, asked a couple questions. The first one is if someone is reporting a higher level of problem from water damage than an expert thinks is accurate, that is a sign that the person reporting has mold uh, susceptible genetics and that the expert is ignorant of the conditions that cause extreme illness in those people. And then there's a follow-up to that. Uh, it's, that was more of a statement than a question. Uh, doesn't understand documenting bad conditions and expecting physicians to treat the consequences. Who, uh, what, what is needed as an effort is uh, build, building code requirements for the landlord to maintain healthy conditions. Why not uh, put effort there instead of allowing uh, the cause to continue? That's an interesting comment, Matt. Uh, yeah, and I, yeah, I don't disagree with that. And I, I think that uh, there's a, a quite a bit of science now that, and pretty clear that, that people shouldn't live in chronically damp conditions. And uh, chronically damp conditions are strongly associated with the development of a wide array of microbial agents. And, you know, the research is pretty clear. People shouldn't live in those kind of conditions. And uh, Unfortunately, code uh, does cover moisture, but but uh, in a limited fashion, uh, there really uh, shouldn't be uh, uh, opportunities for uh, chronic dampness, for moisture to be around for long periods of time. The challenge, though, is that uh, modern buildings have little hydric buffer capacity. They don't have the ability to hold large amounts of water like older buildings do so that water has nowhere to go. So it takes a whole lot less water in a given indoor environment to create damp conditions. And then you've given that uh, indoor environment with modern building materials, with metal stuff. Yeah, we, we have more susceptible yeah, components. farm to 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 both dampness and to uh, microbial amplification. So, so that creates an additional challenge. Uh, absolutely, there ought to be, and and I believe the National Healthy Housing Standard. If you look up that document, that includes that's a model for enhancing code, and that uh, National Healthy Housing Standard does speak to to moisture. And most of your cognizant authorities, uh, uh, AIHA or others, have already come out with position documents, ASHRAE, on moisture and dampness, and that really needs to be addressed uh, immediately. The, the health consequences are, are, at this point, pretty well established. So uh, I certainly would advocate for a similar kind of position that Matt is taking. So I got another question for you. Um, so with the dramatic increase in chronic disease incidents in the USA and increasing, uh, increasing evidence indicating a causation role by the outdoor and indoor air, chemical and microbiological contaminants, uh, et cetera, are medical uh, schools teaching young nurses and doctors to consider so-called environmental illness? And are you seeing that in, in your hospital staff? No, I don't. I don't work for a medical school. I don't, I'm not right. familiar with medical school training, but what I can say, cause we actually got a grant related to this about six years ago. Uh, the average medical student, at least six years ago, received one hour, one hour of environmental health training. Uh, six years ago, there was an Institute of Medicine report about the lack of environmental health training for uh 
in medical schools and that there needed to be an increase uh, or integration into the curriculum uh, with more discussion about uh, environmental health. So th that is certainly uh, lacking. There are uh, fortunately uh, funding from federal agencies to support some environmental health work. Like I actually am partly paid by as a consultant for our Mid-America uh, Pediatric Environmental Health Specialty Unit, or PESU. There are PESUs that serve all of the EPA region of the United States, and they are they have on board uh, medical and technical consultants to help any provider within a region uh, dealing with usually pediatric environmental exposures, but it can certainly be with adults as well. I also want to say that person said something about the increasing chronic disease in the U.S. That's not uh, ex exclusive to the United States. All first world countries have seen an explosion in chronic disease in the last 40 years. And the World Allergy Organization published in, I think it was 2014, a fascinating report that showed a, uh, along with this explosion in a host of chronic diseases was the loss of biodiversity, ecological diversity in first world countries. Uh, that you don't, you saw this decline over the same time period, decline in biodiversity, and an increase in all of these chronic health issues. And people, there's, a, there's several studies that show the relationship between the outside biodiversity and the indoor microbiome. And the person spends time in that indoor microbiome with the soup of chemicals that the person alluded to. So it's a combination of biologicals that have been corrupted, probably usually by that added moisture that corrupts what the microecology is and provides a selective advantage to uh, bad uh, microbes, if you will. But also uh, that promotes more of the chemical activity and people being exposed to it. And there's all sorts of, most of you are familiar with this new indoor chemistry science coming out and, and the biofilms and the interactions between biofilms and surfaces and then the chemicals that are used uh, daily by people. We're finding that so much of what people do contributes to what they're exposed to because there's this habit to pull off the shelf a wide array of chemicals and not pay attention to how when you use those the how they might yeah the interactivity yeah. and what yeah. what is the synergistic effect of using those along with that biome and the lack of diversity all of these things are contributing to the the level of human disease we see in first world countries that you do not see in third world countries and there's some amazing studies that have compared communities that after World War II, one was isolated and stayed third world, the other one developed, and the disease developed in the first world side and didn't develop in the third world side because they're not being exposed to first world chemistry, to first world uh, buildings. And first, yeah, yeah. 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 It, that all, I think those are all causal, you know, it's a combination of all of the above. And you're right. Um, you know, it's, you know, in our, our world, I mean, you know, uh, again, uh, my wife was emphatic at getting us away from using a lot of household uh, cleaning products, chemical products, you know, so we pretty much, I mean, we use very benign things, you know, a lot, lot of, lot of vinegar, you know, essential oils yeah. and that sort of thing. We really got away from the, the, the real heavy bathroom cleaners and those sort of things. And quite frankly, now when I'm exposed to that stuff, I trigger immediately with it because I have no tolerance to breathing that stuff. Yeah, hey, well, there's a gross overuse of, of disinfectants and sanitizers. They aren't, yeah, neat. Yeah. You, you just don't need them. It, it affects that microecology. Well, yeah, you're changing the balance, right? I mean, right, it, changes, right. it changes the balance. Uh, uh, Steven, uh, Steven has a question. You want to turn your camera on or at least uh, unmute yourself? Um, I... Okay. Oh, there you go. I can hear you. Okay. 
Hi, um, Stephen Barsha. I'm in the uh, New York City area. I've been doing uh, environmental work for almost 30 years. So I've seen everything from low-income housing to very affluent communities, all kinds of different problems. One of the things in New York City right now, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, there's something called Local Law 55, which is an allergen law. They're basically the compliance is they're trying to do to inspect apartments for mold, moisture, um, uh, uh, insects, okay? And uh, you report to the owner and so that they can uh, mitigate whatever problems are occurring in the apartment. Now, one thing that we come across is we come into these apartments that not only the apartments that are like rent controlled, low income, but very affluent, very luxurious apartments that are complete pigsties. I'm sure you guys have seen it. Sure. I've and, been there. Yep. You know, yeah. And, and, and people call in and they complain about uh, a stain of mold in the bathroom that's the size of a dime, but they have three parakeets, four cats, and two of them smoke. Yep. How, how do we, and they have children that are asthmatic or have other problems. How have you dealt with that or how do you deal with that kind of stuff? Uh, we're, we're with you, Stephen. We've been dealing with the same kind of thing for 20. We're a hospital system that serves all clients. So we've been, I've been exactly as you say, I have been in million dollar homes that were pigsties and I have been in desperately uh, poor, low income homes that were immaculate. You could literally eat off the floor. They were beautiful in how they maintained their home. It, it has very much to do with how you were raised and the recognition of these exposures. The challenges, and I, I thank you for bringing this up because that's the other challenge of our industry that most people don't understand is there's a whole psychology of indoor environmental exposure. You are typically dealing with people who are very anxious about the unknown, very worried about uh, these things that they hear about in their indoor environment, these invisible particles and chemicals and dust mites. What the heck is a dust mite? And you, you see these magnifications, but they don't, they can't find them in their home. Lead in my paint. How do, how do I tell I've got lead in my paint? So people don't see these things. They're worried about them. So you're, you're already dealing with a heightened level of anxiety about specific things. Like you said, Stephen, without paying attention or inten uh, intentionally ignoring other uh, things that are clearly uh, well known in the literature to be contributing to uh, health problems because they're being exposed to large amounts of it. I've been in homes where they were convinced that, uh, like you said, a small amount of moisture damage somewhere was causing major problems when they had, you know, a hundred candles easily across the whole house creating an ambiance, but they, they suffered from chronic headaches uh, whereas we are the kind who carry Ghostbuster equipment and our ultrafine particle counter shows, you know, it's just through the roof. They're in the hundreds of millions of ultrafine particle, nanoparticles that they're breathing every day. And when you can advocate, and it, it's a careful, tricky process, uh, uh, you've got to gain a level of rapport and trust with your client. Uh, and, and that evolves over time. For us, it is uh, over a couple of visits, uh, uh, touches, if you will, phone calls, visits uh, come back we you also have to have positive reinforcement in your report you can't just give them all negatives you have to have well here's the good things and we also converted our reports into advisory plans it's not a report it's not these are the deficiencies we found it's these are the good things we found and these are the things we would recommend changing we tried to structure our report carefully simple language lots of photos and color coding uh, about what's good and what's bad and then uh, if we can use that to help us steer the conversation because we've built a relationship with them, usually uh, they uh, will at least take some action. But, you know, that's not true for everyone. We have some people who, you know, 
they love their Febreze or their whatever product it is. They, they're not going to not use that. They love their dogs, their pets, even though they're allergic to them. So you, sometimes you have to give them strategies to at least mitigate the exposure, but that's what you're limited to. So that seems very Mary Poppins-esque. Yes. <laughs> I, a I, pull I, of sugar helps the medicine go down. Yeah, yeah I mean, you're right. Because when you just come in and just <laughs> start like no cite, citing everything that you suck, you know, it's like people don't respond well to that. Oh, I've had them say that early yeah. in my career. That actually makes sense. My well, some of my first reports, I actually had a person tell me, "You're just telling me my house sucks. I, I don't, I, yeah. I don't need that." Yeah, I don't need to pay you Go to away. insult me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I learned very quickly you couldn't just simply say, "Oh, look, here's all the problems." Even if you had funding to fix some of them, uh, yeah. you, well, you still well, yeah, because there's be... still a psychosocial thing going on here. Exactly. You know, you're, a, you're talking about somebody's home, their their you know their their lifestyle. Yeah, and and you, and also you have people who are really are dealing with a, a real problem and are anxious about it, and rightfully so. But part of our charge is to kind of calm them down a little bit and let's mm. work through how we can solve this. And I'll try to help you uh, any way I can and, and help get resources. Or if you have financial resources, help advise you on how you might spend those uh, funds. But uh, you know, it, it's a relationship. Uh, even though I work for a nonprofit hospital, it's still it's about the relationship you can create with a, a, a caregiver or a client or a patient. Uh, we have a question, another question in the chat, so I'll, I'll just read this one. Uh, this is from Terry. Uh, very little of uh, USA's existing building stocks were designed and built to withstand the extreme weather conditions from climate change. Uh, do you agree that this potentially will create a big increase in chronic health problems? Uh, no, because it already has, right? I mean, fundamentally, it isn't, uh, it isn't that our housing stock is in good condition and climate change is going to make it worse. The problem is our housing stock is in deplorable condition. Uh, we have not invested at all in good quality housing. Uh, we're trying to invest in uh, energy efficient housing. And the single most important thing that a citizen will do if they own a home is invest in uh, making their home more energy efficient, therefore more resilient. And what the research is showing is if you do that investment effectively, proper air sealing and insulation and some other correct investments, that you make the home uh, air more airtight, you, you have better control over the air in the home, you can design your your uh, air circulation systems to not leak, to not have duct leakage, better distribution, it leads to health benefits. So if you invest in a, a making a home energy efficient, resilient in response to climate change, you will see a health benefit directly associated with that. So I absolutely believe the dollars that are going to be invested in housing improvement must be invested in making homes more uh, you. you frame it in the idea of more resilient, but the work you do is going to be energy efficiency work and healthy homework combined to, to make homes basically healthier because of what people are being exposed to. But it's also about how people live in those homes. What we said earlier, the science shows Lifestyle. so much of exposure is how people, what people expose themselves through 
too through their routines, their daily routines, and and not paying attention to all the the chemicals and other things they might do, or or using exhaust ventilation properly, having it on for full twenty minutes after taking a shower, or or mm-hmm. using exhaust in the kitchen. People don't use yeah, it they anywhere have it, but they near. Don't use it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And clearly, we know the pollutants and carcinogens coming from routine cooking are uh, immense, large, large concentrations of these that people pay no attention to. And I I can say, you know, thinking back, some of the worst stuff I saw uh, back in 2004, I did a stint as the science consultant on uh, the Lifetime show, How Clean Is Your House? It was a UK show they brought over. And they did did a series of it. was When they brought it to the States, it was a West Coast show, but then they did a a stint in the New York City area. So I got, so they enlisted me on there. And and these were people that were upper demographic living in conditions that you couldn't believe. I mean, like, I've never, like, I walk, you know, walk in there and there's just cockroaches running across the counter. Well, that's what Steven said. And and, and these two, these two, these two, two ladies who were, you know, like both, you know, roommates and both working in finance in Manhattan, you know, big six figure jobs. Yeah. With cockroaches running in their kitchen. I'm just like, oh, well, look at uh, if you look at the American Housing Survey, uh, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, if you, you could break that out by income and, and, and take uh, how many people reported pests at all income levels. And what's surprising is uh, there is a, a consistent percentage at all income levels that report the environmental problems you see in homes. It isn't unique to a, a low income or middle income or to some particular income. They all have it. It might be a slightly higher percentage in one income level, but you see it at all income levels. So uh, these are issues that are, are common in housing, not common in a particular type of housing. I've got one more comment over on the Healthy Endurers online community. I just want to get this in. Um, I'm, and it's a comment. I would just read it quick. Uh, so not to uh, denigrate anything else that we've said here, but uh, I hear a lack of understanding of water damage caused health problems. All the people living out of their vehicles in the desert, chemical-free, who cannot live in any building, they can, they can find because of the water damage needs someone uh, with qualifications to get on the bandwagon to make a substantial change in requirements for safe housing. Uh, I'll get off the so- soapbox because I have unfortunately uh, learned over time that I'm likely uh, howling in the wind. Not necessarily. I, I, Matt, I'll, I'll say that. I don't think you are howling in the wind. Well, what, let, what me, let me offer some, and I'll call it sad advice. The average time it takes for the healthcare system to adopt a new therapy or treatment is 17 years, 17 years. And I've been working on just the idea of healthy homes for 20 and we're still, uh, our healthcare system, we're still unique in the United States in having uh, environmental hygienists on staff. So, uh, it's a slow process of building the evidence uh, to, to get change. And the challenge is that, uh, and the mistake is, is twofold in the research world. And that is one, uh, there's too much emphasis on uh, the gold standard of a randomized clinical trial. Uh, you don't need to have that level of rigor uh, for certain types of uh, exposure science, I don't think. And two, there's too much emphasis on statistical significance. And actually, in the statistical world, 
there, there's a lot of conversation now about it isn't about a 0.05 uh, confidence interval or, or statistical significance threshold. Uh, if it's 0.1 and you show clear clinical effectiveness or you show something has a clear positive benefit, you don't have to establish some kind of statistical significance. And the statisticians themselves, I've, I've read uh, a number of articles where they themselves are talking about that, about we need to separate this idea of statistical significance in studies from the effect effectiveness uh, of a particular intervention. Some interventions are very effective, even though they may not achieve this level of significance. So uh, that's ongoing. Uh, there's a push in, in the science community to try to open those doors a little bit, but you know, it, it's, it's going to take time. I wish I could say I have a positive answer for that, but that's a good point. So, uh, you know, in our in our pre-show, uh, when we were speaking before we actually went on the live broadcast, Kevin, we were we were talking a little bit uh, about there's an upcoming event that we're uh, with Healthy Indoors. We're actually uh, their Platinum Media sponsor for it. It's the Healthy Buildings America 2021 event this November in Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, this is sponsored by uh, ISIAC, the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, and uh, being hosted by Siri, which is the uh, Cleaning Industry uh, Research Industry. In Institute. They're actually hosting it. Uh, it's an event we're going to be at. Um, it's uh, a, a unique focus for ISIAC because ISIAC uh, typically is focused on primarily on research and academic issues. Um, that, that's really their, their primary focus. Um, this The intent of this show is to actually bring practitioners and researchers together at an event for several days and uh, you know have the opportunity to actually discuss and talk about things there. Uh, what's really what's what's neat about it is that it is, it is a unique place platform, a unique opportunity. And uh, it's it's something you should strongly consider uh, going out there. Uh, Hawaii is actually not as expensive as I expected it to be. My first thought was, oh, good God, who's, who's, you know, it'll cost too much, but it actually doesn't. And, you know, that's an excuse to go to Hawaii. So that's not a bad thing either, right? I like that. Yeah. Well, and it's, a, it's an important conference and, and an important organization. And uh, yes, their focus is academics, but that's not necessarily bad. Uh, there has been a conscious effort over the last several years to cross this chasm between research and practice, because that is, that is a significant chasm where a lot of practitioners with incredible knowledge and experience uh, could be teaching the research community and, and the reverse, uh, uh, not enough practitioners are uh, aware of some of the latest research or even systematic reviews of the research to see what, uh, if you look at a whole host of studies, what the common uh, conclusions and themes are from those. So certainly ISIAC and Indoor Air, there are other conferences, really amazing. Uh, but this, the nice thing about this Healthy Buildings is this uh, crossing of the chasm to, to give practitioners that can be there opportunity to hear about research and give some research to hear about what some practitioners are doing. Yeah, so it's, it's, tr it's, it's truly nice. a bi-directional thing, right, Kevin? I mean, it yeah. needs to go both ways. It's not just having uh, research preach stuff down to the practitioners, to the That's people exactly that are right. actually, you know, it, it, the re research, at least at least the actual practical research needs to have a focus on what, what you know, what, what you need to be looking at. So that's, uh, I think this is going to be a great event. We're looking forward to it. So hopefully uh, many of you will uh, make the trek out to the, out to the middle of the ocean and uh, join us there. It should be great. Um, I hope to be there. Well, I, I hope you will be too. <laughs> so, um, you know, 
healthy indoors and just uh you know is our our still our mothership is healthyindoors.com and that's really you know it's it's our primary site for our uh, digital media organization uh we post news there regular you know on a, on a daily basis you can also get to all the back issues of healthy indoors magazine which by the way in a couple of weeks we're coming up on our eighth anniversary, but they grow up so fast. Don't they, Kevin? Wow, you know, it's, yeah. just, it's crazy. That's amazing. Um, wow. You know, you can see all the shows there and stuff, but most importantly is the healthy indoors online global community. And what is that? Well, the healthy indoors online global community is just that it's a place where you can network, share and learn with other people from around the world, not just from the United States. It's uh, global centric. Um, you can get there free. That's the cool thing about it. Uh, many people are watching the show there today. We have some of it opened up totally public, but we you know, recommend if you want to get some use out of it, actually become a member, even if it's a free basic membership. It'll give you access to network with other people and get, do a lot more than just the public spaces. So that, that's a great opportunity for you to do. Like here's uh, just take a look in the show. Uh, we're live streaming there today and there's comments there. Cool oh, place. That's cool. Very you, cool. And that's where you that's where you'll go to watch all the recordings. Right. If you want to if you want to go watch the show, we've got a repository of that a bunch of other shows. Corbett Lunsford's bringing uh, home diagnosis over. So we'll have season one over there. Um, and as season two rolls out and broadcast, we'll have that there as well. And so there's going to be we're going to bring a, it's not just healthy indoors centric. I guess that's what I want to really stress. So you have the opportunity to, uh, you know, see a lot of other really great uh, content providers. So, um, Terry, I think did you have a question? Because we are we're over time, but I could take it if you have a quick one. Nope. All right. Um, Alrighty, uh, Stephen, I'm going to let you just do a quick follow-up question, if you if you'd like. Oh no, I'm good. I'm just uh, was putting out the clapping thing. Oh, you're <laughs> clapping. Sorry, I thought that was a hand raise. See, it's yeah. uh, it, they look the emojis. I, I can't I can't <laughs> tell. It's a hand. You know, it's like whatever. Um, well, you know, uh, on that, um, you know, we're at that point. So I I really want to thank Kevin uh, so very much for for joining us today. Very happy to be um, here. Yeah, you know, as always, Kevin, you just you just bring a wealth of knowledge and experience. I just I I could speak with you all day long. I love well, it. It's a great conversation. You do the same. It's it's uh, nice to work with you as a host. And uh, same thing. You bring uh, so many different perspectives. It's it's always great. That's because I have multiple personalities. Uh, but, you know, it's it's it, it's a function of ADHD. Not so. Huh. It's, it, well, you know, it's ADHD <laughs> is what it is. You know, I can't stay focused on a topic for more than about thirty seconds, so that's why I have so many. Well, um, I wondered. Now I know. Yeah, yeah. That and immaturity, <laughs> it all goes together. So uh, we're at time. We're over time. We're always over time. You know, if, it's a good thing we're not actually on network television because they'd be like they would have fired me years ago for not staying to the schedule. Uh, <laughs> so we're you know here we are. Um, uh, you know, so I guess, I guess we're, it's, it's again, time to, uh, you know, do our final fanfare. So we'll be back next Thursday, um, here, uh, from one to 2 PM Eastern daylight time, uh, for the healthy indoors live show. Our guest next week is Graham Marsh. Uh, we're going to be talking, it, it's interesting. We'll be talking about the chemistry and dealing with the microbiome. So perfect setup for that, Kevin. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, you know, that's, cool. that's next week's topic. And, uh, but let me also plug the show we've got coming up, um, on Tuesday for the, the after hour show. This is going to be our third installment of that. It's a new show that we do once a month, third Tuesday of the month, uh, Joe Madash and I co-host that um it, it's a little different it's a 90 minute program from 7 p.m eastern time to 8 30 p.m and you know if you haven't seen the show you gotta see it it's it's totally different you think we're loose here we're really loose there the whole premise is that this is the conversation that you would have at an industry event after 5 p.m when the sessions are over and you're in the bar okay so that's you know that's a good way to look at it. Kevin, you'll have to be on eventually because that's it's it's a whole it's a whole different uh, oh yeah always happy to 
participate. Thank you. So anyway, uh, for, so next Tuesday, join us at seven o'clock. And, and that's also available on the uh, Healthy Endurers online global community. And, you know, we'll, we'll have more postings out there. Uh, our guests next week are Stacy Champion, who was a longtime uh, consultant in the IQ field out of the Phoenix, Arizona area. But she's actually uh, dealing a lot with social injustice and she's an activist and doing a lot uh, dealing with a lot of the problems that people are having with excessive heating in their residences. So an indoor environmental issue, it's a little bit different, but really something that's timely. And also joining us will be Ed Cross. He's an attorney from out in California, and he's one of the few attorneys that really know indoor air quality. Um, we, years ago, I had a mock deposition at a conference with him. They put me up on stage, and I used to think I was really good in a deposition until he shredded me in front of about 500 people in an audience. <laughs> Wow, that was sorry, dude. Oh man, and no, he 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 took me to the whooping shed. I'm telling you, it was it wasn't pretty. It was and not I a pretty time. I, I hope so. Yeah, I, but you know what? I mean, you probably have the same thing, right? Um, when you, uh, if, I'm sure you've been deposed, right? And there's been times where you know you feel like you know more than the guy that's deposing you, right, or the lady that's deposing you. But it's really scary when the attorney knows as much as you do, and they're they're sparring with you. It's like, woo, <laughs> they know what I'm going to say next. Yeah. Well, that that that's partly their anticipation as they work through a line of argument. So uh, they have a tactic. Always and I'll give a, a little sidebar too. Uh, just Ed was also one of the drummers uh, for the the rock heavy metal band Autograph in the '80s. That song, Turn Up ah. the Radio, big MTV hit. He's like, yeah, he used to have longer hair. He won't have long hair. Uh, yeah. So oh, we all did. Yeah, right. And more of it. So, yeah. okay. So with that, I've gone uh, another four minutes that I shouldn't have. So thank you all so very much for joining us. Um, you know, we'll see you again next. Well, next Tuesday, join us at 7 p.m. Eastern time for the after hour show because that's a riot. I mean, it's like a lot of information, but we're, we're definitely just having a conversation. It's not really an interview. And then, of course, uh, next Thursday for Thursday's uh, Healthy Indoors live show. So until then, thank you so very much. I'm Bob Krell. I'm your host and founder and chief provocateur here at Healthy Indoors. We'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.